today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The summer session is upon us in the legislature at Queen's Park today. Uh, yeah, they don't often do that, but they're doing it this time. Uh, the Ontario PC government says that uh, they have three main priorities and a number of other uh, areas of business that they have to attend to today in that session. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter, of course, uh, Global News anchor at 530 and 6 and Queen's Park Bureau Chief. How are you doing this morning, Alan? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Excellent, excellent. Uh, not often that uh, that you're down there for sessions during the summertime. It's it, it has happened before, but it's rather unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. However, in this particular case, you have a new government chomping at the bit to get at some of the things it said it would do, including making sure that students are back in school at York University uh, come September. And to do that, to have that uh, legislation in place and passed in time, they're going to have to come in in the summer to do that. You, you may remember during the election campaign that I believe all three parties said that they would recall the legislature mm-hmm. to deal with the York University strike, although the NDP never said that they would uh, obviously pass back-to-work legislation. Yeah, well, that's because <laughs> that's always something that holds them near and dear to the to the teachers and to the professors when they do this sort of thing, but it's imminent and it's going to be happening. Uh, what do you think? There are a couple of other priorities here that, we, that I know that they talked about yesterday as they set their agenda for this session. One of them is... I guess really no surprise, cap and trade, because uh, the Premier Ford's already talked about that and how he wants to get rid of it all together. Uh, and they have to draft legislation. And uh, again, this, it's interesting to see how they're doing this. They also suggested yesterday, Alan, that uh, they want to include something in the legislation that says that no future government will be able to go back and try this again. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Now, what they said was is that uh, they would take out any legislation, they would alter any legislation that would allow a future government to uh, put cap and trade or any kind of price in carbon whatsoever. <clears throat> It's tough to know exactly what that means. They didn't specify. You know, the Ford government is a little short on uh, uh, specifics on a lot of things, and, and that's the case in, in this instance as well. I think anytime you hear that, you, you just remember that any legislation that the conservatives can change right now, a future government can also change in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, that may sound great to, to, to the base there for these sorts of things, but the reality is is uh, one of the first jobs that any government takes as soon as they take office is, okay, what, what don't we like about what they did, and let's see what we can do to do this. And, in fact, that's what he's going to do with some of the legislation, obviously cap-and-trade being one of those things. Uh, were you surprised by the announcement to cancel the wind farm project yesterday? Well, I think a lot of people were caught off guard by that simply because it wasn't a major issue in the campaign. Uh, and, and here it was in their top three uh, priorities that didn't include firing the head of, the, of Hydro One, which you may remember Mr. Ford said a number of times on the campaign trail that that was going to be job one. His first act or first order of business was to get in there and fire the $6 million man, he said. Well, that's obviously not in their top three. But instead, what is in their top three is canceling this wind farm that got its final approval during the writ period, right during the, before the election. And, Bill, I don't know if this rings any bells with you, a provincial government promising to cancel an energy project that's already kind of half-built. Hmm. Is that, hmm. that It rings a bell, yeah. So it, already now we have, you know, the, the owners of this wind farm saying this thing is going to be $100 bucks to, you know, like they have the deal. They, they are you know, in the process of building these things and actually putting up the turbines. And so now for the government to come in and say, no, 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 we've changed our mind. Well, we know what's happened with that in the past. So what we don't know yet is just how much taxpayer money this is going to cost. 
I, I wouldn't want to suggest that they were playing politics with this, but is it more than coincidence that uh, this announcement was made yesterday uh, by government House Leader Todd Smith, and that happens to be in his writing? Well, that's terribly cynical of you, Bill. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> if if you if, if you could up your optimism quotient for us, that would be great. Uh, obviously, that wasn't really lost on anyone. That the top three priorities happens to be, you know, something right in the backyard of the government house speaker. And, and by the way, it's 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 a project not without controversy. I mean, there are a number of uh, projects in different parts of the province right now, wind projects that uh, that obviously a lot of residents are giving pushback on. So I mean, it's a it's a politically safe thing for Todd Smith to to try to you know, get the premier to jump on side and make this a priority. I get that. A lot of people in that area are going to love him for that. Uh, and and they may well be more, but uh, I still it harken back, Alan, to uh, I guess it was one of the first leadership debates uh, when Doug Ford and Christine Elliott and Carolyn Maroney were were vying for the top job, and uh, I think it was Tanya Granick Allen that t- suggested tearing these things out of the ground, and Ford thought that's a great idea, and it was Christine Elliott that said, "Wait a second, wait a second, there are ramifications to r- ripping up contracts," and uh, she seemed to be the adult in the room there. Uh, apparently, she didn't get a voice in this decision. No, um, and it's going to cost us money. Like I say, we, we don't know how much. Uh, the, what the government house leader said about why is this one of your priorities right now is because it is under construction, and as he says, it's time-sensitive. They have to move on it immediately to be able to stop it. But, uh, you know, stand by for all kinds of wrangling. Here's the huge difference, though, between, you know, if you want to draw comparisons between this wind farm and the gas plant situation, is that the negotiations that will go on with the wind farm operator and all of that and all the back and forth, all that stuff, we'll never see any of it. We won't see any of it. Unlike in 2014, or rather 2011, when uh, Dalton McGinty had a minority, well, because he had a minority, the committees could demand that he show them all the email and all the back and forth and all the negotiating, and that's the thing that ended up killing the McGinty government. And it won't be the same in this case because the Fords, the Ford government has a majority, and we he won't ever have to give the House, the legislature, that information. One of the other things, and I know you guys talked about this on, on Global News for a couple of uh, sessions, uh, is, is the ramifications. And, and the wind farm, I think, is an ideal example of that, Alan. Hey, there's a cost to this, and it, th- it may well be $100 million. But even the cap-and-trade legislation that they say is going to be some- introduced later on this week, I guess, uh, there's a cost to that, too. We're told there could be upwards of $3 million, or $3 billion, I'm sorry, uh, for for tearing up that deal and, and some of the ramifications on that. I, I, I hope somebody within the, that, that room in is uh, making these decisions has got their calculator out. I mean, it's starting to run up a bit of a tab. It is. And it, I, again, I go back to this whole uh, gas plant thing. Remember that the liberals were roundly criticized after they won in 2011 uh, for never actually costing out how much it would it would cost to cancel those gas plants. Well, there's no evidence that the progressive conservatives cost, cost it out what it would cost to take us out of cap and trade. And we don't know how much it will be. And we don't know how litigious it could be in terms of, you know, all of these credits that companies have bought over the last year or so. I mean, that's a lot of money that's been tied up. Are they going to get that money back? Where's that cash going? Well, didn't and he also we, suggest last week that they've set aside $30 million for this legal fight? Well, I, th- absolutely. They've had to put money aside for it. So 
we just don't know as a province where it will all end up in terms of what it's going to cost us. But the difference here is that you have a new government coming in who said, well, look, we campaigned on this promise, and we got 40% of the electorate and a huge majority to do so, and we're going to do it. Uh, with those numbers in mind, with what may happen with cap-and-trade and the financial ramifications, and now, of course, this the wind farm cancellation project, did that mindset maybe weigh into the fact that, uh, that, that with this morning uh, Mr. Milo Schmidt's pass card still worked and he could get into his office? <laughs> well, obviously, you know, there was, Mr. Smith was asked the question, how come this isn't on your top three? And he went back to his talking point on, well, the, the three issues that we're talking about, York, cap and trade, and the wind farm, are time sensitive. We have to do them right now. Um, we're going to get to Mayor Schmidt. We're going to get there. I, here's my here's my uh, prediction is that we'll never get to a situation where the government actually has to fire the entire board because you remember that they actually don't have the power to fire Mr. Schmidt. Mm -hmm. They have the power to replace the board that then can in turn replace Mr. Schmidt. That's a convoluted process. Watch for a deal. Watch for an exit strategy for Mr. Schmidt in the coming months. So maybe instead of the ten million, he takes uh, seven point five or something like that and goes uh, quietly into that good night. I think that I think for Mr. Schmidt, there will probably be a benefit in not uh, having a public firing. Whether he takes less money, mm, that remains to be seen. So, what, how long is this going to last? Now they start this thing. They've got some pretty aggressive pieces of legislation. Uh, the, the back to work legislation is not going to get supported by the NDP, but that doesn't much matter. That's of little consequence, really. Uh, the cap and trade, I think, is going to be a lively debate. But at the same time. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you've got the, the two opposition parties, that are gonna, the liberals such as they are with a few of them that are left, and then the NDP. Uh, but again, that's window dressing because this stuff is all going to pass. Are they, they going to sit right through the summer, Alan, do you think, or is this going to happen quickly? Well, that, that remains to be seen. That's a great question, Bill. I mean, yesterday the House Leader, the Conservative House Leader, Mr. Smith, said that uh, he expected that the House would sit for a couple of weeks uh, before uh, adjourning again, and then normally they come back in September, but I expect that since they've come back in the middle of the summer, they'll probably push that back. But remember that in opposition, the NDP has a number of tactics to stall legislation. They can, you know, they could ring the bells. They can try and do night sittings. They can, you know, they can rag the puck as long as they can. So we don't know. It could, like, you're, you're absolutely right. The Conservatives have the numbers, and it, it's going to pass. Just how long will it take is something we don't know yet. Hey, listen, one of the other things that they're going to do, and it's a, uh, it's a traditional thing, obviously, as a point of speaker for the, for the legislature, uh, and it's rather interesting. I, my understanding is there's about five people that have expressed interest in this. Uh, Dave Levesque, of course, was there, it seemed forever, uh, all the way through the, the liberal years, those 15 years. Uh, and he, of course, stepped down. He didn't run for re-election. But it's usually a House member, especially in a majority government, uh, that gets to do this. Uh, we, we handicap that for us. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that Randy Hillier's interested, uh, because in the past he's been tossed out by the Speaker a few times. Uh, so uh, it, it, I, I'm just interested in, in where this may go, because it does play a pretty important role in the day-to-day in the -day procedures. It does. And, and let me tell you a quick backstory, if I could, uh, just about Dave Levac and how important that position is. So Dave Levac becomes speaker in 2011. And he was, like you say, he was a longtime uh, serving speaker, longest ever, I believe. And he was the one that ruled that the McGinty government, there was a prima facie case, which means there's a, there's a, a case for contempt 
uh, when the then energy minister did not release all these emails concerning the gas plant negotiations, what we were just talking about. And that ruling by the speaker essentially undid McGinty and led to him resigning. So, and Mr. Lack faced an enormous amount of criticism from his own party for doing so. So whoever gets into that position, you never know the kind of rulings that they will make in the future and how important it can be to your government. Having said that, I think Ted Arnott is probably the leader in the race for this. I, it's tough to know. This is, uh, I think, the only time that MPPs get a secret vote that you don't actually find out who voted for, for whom. It's chosen by all MPPs. They all get a vote. All the, the candidates, of course, are conservatives, as uh, you pointed out. But Ten Arnott was uh, deputy speaker before. Also look for Jane McKenna from Burlington. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's looking to be the first female speaker ever. Randy Hillier, funny that you point him out, he would be, I, I think for a lot of us in the press gallery, we would love him as speaker. <laughs> we really would. Uh, and But he's been such a maverick in the past. I think there's going to be a real reluctance on the part of the conservative party, like, wow, wait a second, this guy plays by his own rules, and we might need somebody who plays by our rules. D is that vote going to happen today? Yeah, that happens today. Uh, fascinating stuff, as always, and uh, boy, it's usually a uh, summer hiatus time and not much going on, but it's going to be pretty lively down there. Alan, busy day for you. Thanks for taking some time for us today. really appreciate it. Bill, always great to be on. Thank you. And uh, we'll watch for the updates later today, of course, on Global News at 530 and 6. Thanks again, Alan. Bye now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots going on in the world today. Uh, the NATO meeting got underway officially uh, earlier this morning. Uh, most of the leaders got there yesterday, and, but uh, they actually sat down and uh, they had a breakfast. And Well, the anticipation was that uh, it was going to get a little bit crazy when Donald Trump showed up, and, well, he didn't disappoint. Germany, as far as I'm concerned, is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia. Mm. We're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia, and I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, that was uh, just one of many controversial statements that, uh, that Trump made uh, at the meeting. Obviously, he took some shots at the chairman of NATO, uh, at other nations, including Canada, for not spending enough on defense and military spending, and on and on it went. Uh, but with that happening right now, and Trump's statements, uh, there, there are some people that are actually questioning whether or not uh, the U.S. has that strong commitment to NATO, as other res or presidential uh, administrations have had in the past. What's the future of that, and what's going to happen as a result of this meeting? Joining us to talk about this is Oral Braun, who is a professor of the Department of Political Science at the U of T, the Mississauga campus, also a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Uh, Oral, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the Trump influence on this. Uh, and, and we saw a little bit of that, I guess, at the G7 in Quebec a, a few weeks back. But it was anticipated that he was going to come in there and start throwing hand grenades. And he certainly hasn't disappointed. Uh, and I guess we have to put this in context, don't we, Oral, that uh, this is the same guy that uh, during the presidential campaign when he was running for the office said that NATO was obsolete and, uh, and questioned whether or not it should even be in existence. Uh, uh, let's, let's talk about the U.S. commitment towards NATO. I think it's very important that uh, we try to separate rhetoric from policy. Uh, the rhetoric that Mr. Trump uses is inflammatory, it is crude, it is provocative, but um, the policies on the ground, in fact, are hardly uh, ones that favor Russia. 
The American uh, defense expenditures have skyrocketed, so the American military is getting stronger and stronger. This year, they're spending $700 billion. Next year, $716 billion. He has been pushing the uh, NATO allies to spend more to confront Russia. Uh, American uh, forces uh, have been training and supporting the Baltic states. They have uh, uh, been leading one of the brigades uh, in the uh, uh, region. And uh, so uh, whatever he said during the campaign, the Americans are in NATO. They're providing a tremendous amount of support. And whatever he said about Germany is not something that other leaders have not said in the United States in a more moderate fashion. Uh, the German deal on energy with Russia has alarmed Poland, has alarmed many other states in, uh, in Europe. Uh, it is bypassing Ukraine, bypassing Poland. It is making Germany much more dependent on uh, uh, energy. And it is a reality that a rich country like Germany is spending 1.24% of its GDP on defense while it's reaping large profits from dealing with the Russians, complaining all the time that the Russians need to be confronted. So uh, we have uh, the rhetoric that is appealing to us from Germany, for instance, that Russia is a threat, Russia interferes in elections, Russia is pressuring NATO states, but what are they doing about it? It is the Trump administration that has for instance, supplied defensive armaments to Ukraine. Germany has opposed that all along. There's a certain amount of hypocrisy, I guess, with a lot of the stuff that's going on. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Trump making what could be classified as as, as anti-Russian comments uh, when he's talking about this, like, hey, we're supposed to be, well, you know, defending against this. But at the same time, I mean, he cozies up to, to Vladimir Putin in a way that uh, other world leaders just, you know, roll their eyes at. So uh, they're right. There seems to be some, some contrary messages here that just seem to be butting heads with each other. Mr. Trump has become such a figure, uh, he has become a kind of caricature of himself, a figure of ridicule that whatever he says is dismissed. But what he has been saying substantively has not been that different from what Americans and many others have been saying for a long time. And that is that United States had been spending vastly more than the Europeans uh, for many, many decades because Europe needed to recover from the war, which they have. But this was to be a temporary measure. It was not that the United States was going to pay forever for the privilege of defending Europe. It was not that European defense is more important to the United States than it is to the Europeans themselves. Uh, the Obama administration in 2011, the Secretary of Defense, of defense of uh, United States, Robert Gates. Remember, this is the Obama administration, hardly one that sought confrontation with other countries or with Russia. Robert B uh, Gates said that unless NATO states in Europe significantly increase their expenditures, NATO will become militarily irrelevant. Now, this was put in an elegant fashion with proper syntax a non-provocative way, but the substance of that was not all that different from what the Trump administration is saying. So when you look at the rhetoric coming from Europe or coming from the Canadian leadership and what is happening on the ground, you have almost a kind of reversal, soft rhetoric from 
the Trump administration and hard policies. Hard rhetoric from many other states in NATO and soft policies. And that's a gap that has to be closed. In many ways, Mr. Trump is the worst possible messenger. But we also have to look at the actual message. If we believe that the Russian threat is significant, you can't scare them by words. You have to have something on the ground to deter them. I try to get, maybe offer some clarification on, on what seems to be a very controversial point here, Oral, and, and that's that commitment uh, towards military spending by NATO members. Trump is asserting, of course, that it, that's the policy, that, uh, that Canada, Germany, and others are falling behind in a policy. Uh, their response to that is, no, it's not a policy. It was a guideline, and it was uh, a stated goal that was not to be reached until 2024, and, and they were going to do that incrementally. And uh, uh, Trump seems to be adamant that, no, you're wrong. This is the way it should be right now. Is, is there any clarity on that that you could b- bring to our attention? A decision was made at the Whale Summit in uh, 2014 that there would be a guideline. And you're quite right. There's a guideline that is not binding but it was agreed on by the NATO states. It was done in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine using hybrid warfare and the illegal annexation of Crimea that uh, all the countries in NATO would, within 10 years, spend 2% minimum minimum of their GDP on defense, and of that, at least 20% would be spent on the purchase of equipment, so it wouldn't be just spent on pensions and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one can say, yes, legally, uh, this is not enforceable. But it was not something that was just imposed by the United States. This was something that was a matter of consensus. So the question is, which are the countries that are going to make that uh, agreed-upon guideline of 2% and which are not? 16 countries, 16 countries, the majority, of uh, the alliance are on track to reach uh, that uh, level by 2024. Something like eight countries are scheduled to reach it this year. Uh, Germany is not going to do that. Canada is not going to reach that. Italy is not, not going to reach that. The Netherlands is not going to reach that. And this is where Mr. Trump is saying, these are wealthy countries. You talk about the Russian threat what are you doing about it? Yeah, there's some indication here that Canada's spending actually is going to go down uh, this year to 1.23. It was at 1.36 the year before that. So we seem to be going in the wrong way uh, if, in fact, we're trying to attain those goals. Uh, but, but again, Trump's assertion uh, in one of the comments he made anyway at that breakfast they had earlier this morning, I'm sure you saw the comment, Arl, was that, look, you guys owe us money because, you know, we've spent all with this and you guys are underspending on situations like this, which is uh, probably an unfair characterization and really not the way the system works. I mean, the money doesn't go uh, to, to the United States. It goes within a, a pot, obviously, and it's contributed. And the United States, I, I think, has actually went there up, up to about 4.2%, I think, of their GDP uh, already. So, uh, I mean, I can understand the inequity here, and, and, and you got to figure that some of the talking points that Mr. Trump is using are actually provided him by his staff, by uh, uh, folks in the State Department and the Defense Department and things of this nature. But I guess it's, it's the way in which the message is being delivered that is starting to ruffle some feathers. He's careless with facts, with data. He puts into the most provocative fashion. Uh, he uh, speaks in an angry, angry way, 
and so uh, it is easy to catch him on rounding up or rounding down mistakes of uh, the specific uh, way of uh, how you add and how you subtract. But the substance of what is happening is something that we need to look at very carefully. If we examine Canada, for instance, leave aside the pressure for Mr. Trump because he's so widely disliked in Canada and elsewhere. But we talk about the Canadian defense policy being one that wants to ensure that we are strong, secure, and engaged, that we have the capacity to guard our sovereignty. We are a very large country uh, with vast coastlines on three oceans. In the Arctic, the Russians have engaged in a massive military buildup. They are engaged in a huge oil and gas exploration quest, which is presenting an enormous threat to the environment because Russians have a terrible record on environmental protection. We in Canada, leaving everything aside, need to have capacity to defend our sovereignty, to be able to navigate in the Arctic, which means heavy icebreakers, especially with climate change, there will be more opportunities. The Chinese are very much interested. This is something that we need to look at as part of our sovereignty. Are we providing our armed forces with what is necessary? Our allies are buying fifth-generation fighters, Denmark, Norway, Britain, United States. We have postponed the decision on that, and we decided to buy hand-me-down used aircraft from Australia. So how exactly are we meeting the commitment that we ought to have to ourselves? Are we having that discussion in this country? It seems it only becomes a front-burner issue for us during NATO meetings and seems to be quickly forgotten after that. We are having some of the discussions, but I'm not sure that uh, we have enough of them and that uh, we uh, understand that uh, some of what uh, Mr. Trump is saying is a diversion and that we need to have the discussion regardless of what uh, the international community, including United States is saying or demanding because we have our own particular needs. And, you know, we have made some improvements. We have a program to increase spending by something like 70% over a 10-year period, but that is not going to get us to a position where, in my view, and that of many critics in Canada, we will be able to fulfill the missions that we have set for ourselves. And that's the kind of thing we have to look at. And this is where the Germans have to ask themselves, if you are worried about the Russians, and there are some reasons for that. It's not the Cold War. Russia is not a superpower, but Russia has a bad record of misbehaving in international relations and of pressuring the bordering states. Then what are you doing about it? Why are you becoming more dependent on Russian energy when you are telling the world, your chance of telling the world how dangerous Russia is? So... Um, Mr. Trump, in a sense, uh, um, you know, makes it easier sometimes for these leaders to avoid a real debate because they can just dismiss uh, the American demands as unreasonable. But substantively, those demands are not entirely new. They are put in a more virulent form. 
and the needs that these countries have to deal with their own security are also something that has to be examined uh, carefully and in a realistic fashion because it is a dangerous geopolitical situation. Well, when this happens, though, and this infighting is happening at these NATO meetings, does does Putin look on from this as as a weakness that can be exploited, uh, and does that embolden him uh, for for the moves like Crimea, like Ukraine, and 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 as you mentioned, some of the Arctic incursions that seem to be occurring? In a sense, there's a lot of irony here because we assume, uh, and in some ways, it is not an, an unreasonable assumption that. Mr. Putin wants to see division among NATO states. He would like to see the dissolution of NATO. He enjoys the intramural fights that uh, are taking place within the alliance. So surely he must be benefiting from this this greatly. But when you look at what's happening on the on the ground, what does Russia fear the most? Russia fears the most uh, uh, a Western world that is arming, that is developing capacity, because they can't match that. I mean, the Russian economy, in nominal terms, is only about the size of that of Italy, one-eighth the size of that of the United States, about one-eighth that of the size of the EU. So when the United States is massively increasing armament uh, spending, then Russia can't match that. When NATO is increasing spending, even if they do not reach the 2% uh, of uh, GDP, but 16 will by 2024, that is extremely bad news for Russia. Russia also is very heavily dependent on energy. When the United States uh, becomes an energy exporter, it is one now, it's going to become a larger one. That depresses energy prices. That is bad for Russia. If the United States can persuade, push, or bully Germany into lessening its energy dependence on Russia, that is again bad for Russia. So Mr. Putin might enjoy Mr. Trump's soft words, but the policies on the ground don't benefit Russia. Oral, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this uh, very important meeting happening in Brussels today. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. You're welcome. Oral Braun, of course, professor of the Department of Political Science at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, annual report uh, by the Ontario Human Rights Council has uh, been released now. At uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, is when we got our hands on it, looking into some of the biggest issues that impact us today and uh, where we need to go in the future. Uh, Renu Mandani is the uh, Ontario Human Rights Council Chief Commissioner, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Renu, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Listen, as you look at some of these numbers, uh, are, are we progressing? Are we moving forward on some of these things or spinning our wheels? I think that our report is actually quite optimistic in terms of showing um, the progress that we are making and the impact that, in particular, the Human Rights Commission is having. And, of course, there's always more work to be done. I mean, for example, in our public opinion poll we did last year, um, you know, 66% of people said discrimination was at least somewhat of a problem still in Ontario. And, you know, we've been around for 50 years, and we expect that there will be work 
for us to do over the next 50 years. But, yes, I think we are as a society sort of progressing on key issues that uh, that matter to the communities that we work with. I, I know discrimination is a, is a flash word, point word for an awful lot of people because they say, oh, no, we don't mean to do that. Uh, there's, there's blatant discrimination, and we've seen examples of that, certainly, and we've talked about that in the past. But there's, there's also almost subliminal uh, discrimination when it comes to, to, to the opportunities that are being presented. And I know that you've broken down uh, your study into a couple of key areas here. Uh, one of them, of course, being child poverty and child welfare, and uh, uh, a very troubling statistic about how uh, both Indigenous and black children are overrepresented in child welfare across Ontario. Yeah, so um, part of what we've tried to do, actually, kind of to get at what you're saying um, about how people don't really understand how systemic discrimination works is one of the things that we've really tried to do is start to collect uh, quantitative data to illustrate what uh, what communities are talking about. And so, for example, we heard uh, from black and indigenous communities over and over again that they felt that their children were being apprehended by child welfare agencies um, at disproportionate numbers. And what we did uh, last year is we uh, collected data from uh, most of the child welfare agencies in the province, including from Hamilton. And what we found is that there was disparity in the, the apprehension of Indigenous black children. And just to give you a sense, in Hamilton, for example, um, Black or Indigenous children were, for example, three times more likely to be apprehended than white children. And obviously, uh, we need child welfare agencies. But what this sort of shows you is that at a trend level, there's a problem here. And certainly, uh, what we we highlighted was that poverty, for example, is higher in these communities because they have less access to the labor market because they have intergenerational histories of trauma, including slavery. Um, and so how are we going to actually address the root problem? Because at the end of the day, I think all of your listeners would agree that we want families that can take care of their children. And if they're poor, how do we support them so that they can do that? Well, and therein lies part of the problem. And, and, and you're absolutely right. We talk about child poverty and people say, come on, kids can't really be poor. Well, yeah, they can. And, and the, the, but there is a problem here, obviously, with things like education, obviously with a, a possibility of employment, uh, and, and it, the, the challenges, I, I guess, are monumental for everybody who's dealing with poverty right now, but it seems more so for especially the, those two groups that you've identified. Yeah, and that's why actually part of um, what we're, uh, we highlight in the report is our calls to include a social condition in uh, as a ground of discrimination. And social condition really is to get at the fact that homeless and poor people face unique forms of discrimination because they're poor. So not only because they may be racialized or have a disability, but that, um, you know, even if you don't identify on any of the other grounds in the code and you're poor, especially in manufacturing towns like Hamilton, we see this where people have lost their usual source of income and they actually face barriers to renting apartments or getting a job precisely because they're on social assistance. And so I think what we're also seeing is that poverty itself is uh, starting to be seen as a human rights issue. And, and there are so many variations on that, too. I mean, poverty in, in and of itself does not necessarily mean uh, that people aren't working. Uh, oftentimes, some of these people that are un, under the poverty line and living in these circumstances have a job or two jobs in some cases, trying to make enough money to pay the rent or to, and buy groceries, et cetera, and, uh, and still aren't making it. 
Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, at the crux of human rights and why certain groups receive human rights protection is because of stereotyping. And what really at the fundamental level the code says is, you know, you judge people based on their individual abilities, not based on stereotypes. And, you know, poor people face significant stereotyping. Again, that poll we did showed that some of the negative, most negative attitudes um, that Ontarians held were reserved for people on social assistance to the point where people said, you know, it's okay for a landlord not to rent to somebody on social assistance, even though many of those people are working poor and there's no evidence to suggest that they don't pay their rent. So, you know, these are the kinds of issues I think that we're starting to see uh, and think about and think about how the human rights system might be able to really acknowledge those people's realities. Yeah, but we've had to deal with some problems that, that, that you know, those that are renting, for instance, and uh, those that are at that end of the of the spectrum are, have said, well, that's just our policy. For instance, you know, okay, you, I, I'm going to rent you this apartment, but I need first and last month's rent. Well, I can't, I haven't got that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, then you don't get the apartment. And, and th- those are some of the issues that... It may seem inconsequential to some people, but somebody who's in a circumstance like this, is that, that's not just a huge barrier. That's that's a problematic. That's a concrete ceiling, not a glass ceiling. And I think what that really gets to is just the broader social issue of the lack of availability of affordable housing. So, you know, if a landlord could rent to, you know, 20 different people are lined up for that apartment, it sort of spurs that thinking that they're going to rent to whom they believe to be the ideal candidate, whether that person is somebody, for example, who uh, isn't on social assistance, who isn't black, who isn't indigenous. And so, you know, some of these issues are obviously, they're, they're big issues, they're bigger than the Human Rights Commission. But what I think our report shows is that the Human Rights Commission has really positioned itself to be a leading voice on these big issues, whether it's around policing or poverty or reconciliation, and that we have a unique perspective grounded in quantitative and qualitative evidence that it is important for decision makers to think about. Yeah, but the, the part of the problem, and, and, and I think probably one of the reasons why you do the work that you do here, Renu, is because oftentimes people that are in that circumstance must feel sometimes as if they're, you know, stuck in this 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 game of, of political volleyball where they get batted back and forth depending on the government who happens to be in power and their particular perspective on this. And and boy, that can change like 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 the weather can on any particular day, and, yeah. and they get they get stuck in the middle. Yeah, and I think that's what's really important about the commission's work is that we really exist because there was a recognition by the government that some of these problems aren't able to be remedied through individual complaints. You know, the people, when I visit communities, especially indigenous communities up north, I mean, people say to me, you know, it's unreasonable to expect me to file a complaint for every type of uh, negative interaction I have, whether it's at the hospital or with the police or with child welfare agencies. And I think why where the commission is at its best is when we can actually hear those voices and say, look, we're going to take on some of that burden. We're going to work on those systemic challenges so that it doesn't take each individual having to come forward with a complaint when, let's be honest, most people who are really struggling don't have the time to navigate um, you know, a complaint system. Obviously, we encourage them to bring forward complaints, but I think the commission exists so that those issues that fall through the cracks that we can be there. And I mean, our work, for example, in prisons is is typical where these are really voiceless uh, people who don't have any political capital 
but the commission can actually channel their concerns and make them uh, something that politicians at least have to think about. But and again, it's 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 opening up that discussion. I mean, we've had discussions here in in town, Renu, about, uh, for instance, uh, you know, the St. Leonard Society, St. Leonard's House, or the John Howard Society, you know, tr- attempting to do some work. And and there's initially always a pushback from people in a community saying, oh, "We don't want those people around here." Uh, and, and and right off the bat, you know, they're, they're starting with uh, in a hole, really, from from that standpoint, because they're not wanted within that community, even though they're people that are trying to to, to better themselves and, and move on with their lives. And that, that's got to be awfully depressing, I think, and, and discouraging for people that are attempting to do something like that. Yeah, and I think, like, one of the main roles that we play is destigmatizing, um, you know, and so, for example, in prisons, I think we've been quite effective in really painting the picture of who's in prison. I mean, many of these people, uh, more than 50% have mental health disabilities, and we're not able to get treatment in the community. And so I think the commission can play a role in sort of being part of the debate and contextualizing it so that the average person, the lay person who isn't following human rights on a regular basis says, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't really understand that. Okay, these are people I, I now feel compassionate for. And, you know, like I think that human rights in many ways, it opens the conversation, but it has to be taken up at a community level. So that's why the Human Rights Commission has been so focused on engaging with community through media, through social media, because we don't want to just be a think tank. We actually want to uh, address the pe- things that people care about and frame them in an important way. And, I, and, you know, our historic work on mental health, on gender identity, I mean, we were one of the first uh, institutions to even start talking about the rights of trans people and our survey again the poll we did showed that you know 70% of Ontarians support accommodating trans people so that they can for example use the washroom of their choice I mean that's a remarkable change in a short period of time and so you know Ontarians are open they are progressive they are accepting and I think our role is to sort of build on that and give them the information they need to kind of continue to maintain that open stance. Uh, you also talk about the tools that are needed, and, and that's an important part of the conversation. I always appreciate that that you talk about that, and, and one of those obviously is education. Uh, the education, I guess, to, of the greater public, first of all, about some of these things that you and I just talked about, about some of those barriers and some of those myths, I guess, that perpetuate themselves. But the other is giving opportunity. Uh, and, and are we doing as good a job as we should be at that stage to, to give people uh, that educational opportunity to to, to better the, to, well, basically, uh, for the next generation as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what we see is that when we don't invest appropriately in education, we pay for it in other ways. And so when you look at the rates of use of social assistance for people who have disabilities, I mean, they're, they're really sky high. And what does that say? It says that these are people who have not had the educational opportunities they need to function in this economy. And so one of the things that we're very focused on uh, projecting into the fall is accessible education. I mean, it feels like we have been having this conversation in this province for decades around children with quote-unquote special needs. And the commission really wants to start to really exercise the legal obligations that, 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 you know, schools, boards, and the ministry have to accommodate children with mental health disabilities because ultimately it's in our interest as a society to ensure every child can get an education so that they can contribute. And right now I think the feeling is is that this 
you know, it rears its head occasionally around, for example, autism most recently. But we need to have a systemic approach that's sustainable so that we can actually ensure that kids can get an education, especially, I mean, at the primary and secondary level. Well, and, and I don't know about this government, the newly elected government here in Ontario, but the previous government seemed to be paying attention and, and started to make some of those changes. Uh, I've got a few minutes left here, and i, I got to tell people that have not seen this report, and we'll, we'll give the webpage, by the way, and we'll finish up here where they can go and find this. But, but you don't shrink away from the, the controversial issues. You do talk about the criminal justice system, which is, has been an ongoing problem for a long, long time right now and still in the news very much so uh, in, in major cities right across the province. Uh, are we making any headway there? I mean, because you've, you've delved into things like racial profiling and other issues and, and treatment uh, within the system. And I know one of the, the things that you've really championed is, is the idea of banning solitary confinement for people uh, in, in jails uh, that are dealing with mental health disabilities, uh, which shocked, I think, an awful lot of us to think that that was even happening. But, uh, but you've, you've jumped onto that one and, and been a champion for that issue. Yeah, I think like the commission has to always keep in mind the most vulnerable and marginalized people and be willing to be the voice for people who really aren't at the table. And I, I think that that has to be a primary motivation in the work that we do. You know, we have actually seen, I, I will say, and I will give uh, the previous government at least that the kudos that there was really big changes in terms of the legislative regimes around policing and corrections that reflected not only our advice, but the advice of, you know, police, so, um, police boards and police chiefs. Um, I think what we'll need to see is how do we sustain the momentum that was started. Um, you know, we did end up uh, litigating the issue of solitary confinement, and we did get an order from the Human Rights Tribunal uh, that confirmed that people with mental health disabilities should never be placed in solitary confinement. So, you know, those are the kind of legal victories, legislative victories that we're hoping to continue to capitalize on and to build on with this new government. And, and the issue of racial profiling, once again, as well, which is a community issue, not just a policing issue, uh, which seems to be happening with great regularity. Um, and, and again, you, you wonder sometimes if we're taking one step forward and two steps back. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what I, I, I like that you framed it as one step forward and two steps back, because I think that we cannot reopen the debate about whether racial profiling is a proper investigative tool for police. The fact is, it's illegal. We've moved away from it. And in fact, you know, in Toronto, at least, at the height of racial profiling or, or carding anyway, in 2007, we were actually had a higher um, uh, murder rate than we had when carding was ended in 2015. So I think we need to reorient that conversation to really think about what is an effective way to rebuild trust so that officers are part of communities and community members feel comfortable and confident sharing intelligence information with them, not under threat and not because of profiling, but because they trust the officers that serve them. And I think that is the modern vision of policing that this act, the new act, uh, contemplates. And it's something that that's where we need to go. I don't think the solution to, you know, current problems lies in regression. It, it has to lie in progress. Well, and we've seen some of that, and that's got to be gratifying for you to see that uh, organizations 
organizations uh, are starting to listen to this. And we've seen it here in Hamilton, obviously, with Hamilton Police Services, for instance, that, that now are, have very intense training for officers for things like LGBTQ issues and sensitivity towards that, uh, mental health issues. There's a, a cooperation, a, a partnership between Hamilton Police now and St. Joe's Hospital, mental health issues. So we, we do seem to be making some progress in those areas. Yeah, I certainly think that, um, again, like trying to maintain that positivity. I mean, we've seen the opening of conversations that, you know, weren't happening even 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, now when you say, you know, should people, police be able to racially profile, I mean, most police officers would say, of course not. They might quibble with whether a certain practice is racial profiling, but I think that we've all kind of come to a place, including within police, that, you know, we police a diverse community, that it's imperative that police reflect that community, and that uh, there's no place in that for systemic racism. I think we're at a point where now the devil's actually in the details of how that gets um, rolled out effectively, and also how do we hold officers accountable when, you know, officers or, or policies do do run afoul of the code. And, you know, I think that's where the, the Safer Ontario Act, um, the strength of it was really around the accountability, which is what we always see um, sort of the resistance now lies not in the actual idea that we can't breach the human rights code, but rather in what are the accountability mechanisms uh, to ensure compliance. And so it, certainly from a from a big picture perspective, there's a lot of progress that has been made. But, you know, we are also day-to-day focused on how do we keep pushing forward. Where can they get the uh, report? Where's the webpage? So the webpage, it's on our, our webpage, which is www.ohrc.on.ca. We're also pushing it out really heavily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so we're, it's very uh, available. And if you, uh, the title is Impact Today, so we're using the hashtag Impact Today. Renu, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time Thanks. today. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Okay, Renu Madani, of course, from the Ontario Human Rights Council. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.